Speed is one of the unquestioned values in our modern society. You think about that statement for a second. Uh, Generally speaking, the quicker that something can be done in our world, in our day and age, the better, right? The way that uh, modern technology continues to develop, what uh, once would have taken us several days to do, can now be done in a matter of seconds. I mean, think about just a few of these examples. The first electronic calculator weighed 27 tons and took up 1,800 square feet of floor space, and it used as much power as a small town to power the device. Now you have one in every cell phone that you buy. You can go to Walmart and purchase one for a dollar. Over a little over 150 years ago, the first telephone was invented, and now you can have a video conference with 100 people scattered all over the world in a matter of seconds. A little over 100 years ago, the first car was invented, And now you can purchase self-driving cars. That's not something of the future. That's actually here now. And our kids will probably never remember a time when cars could not drive themselves. We could go on all day with these advances in technology. But the point is that these are taking place so quickly, so rapidly. Our culture is changing. Our world is changing. And all of these uh, developments are to enable us to go faster, to get things done more quickly, to speed up productivity. And just trying to keep up with these changes in our culture can be overwhelming. In our text today, Israel has crossed the Jordan. They're rejoicing, they're celebrating God's miraculous intervention for them. Jericho is just a few miles ahead of them. Our modern tendencies, our instincts as a culture today would say, let's go on, let's push on as quickly as possible. I mean, the people are still enthusiastic. They're motivated because of the miracle of God that just took place. The citizens of Jericho are panic-stricken. We've seen that now twice in the text. Now is the time to strike. Now is the time to go into battle. But surprisingly, in chapter 5, God slows things down a bit. In the heat of the moment, when it seems like to us it would be a great time to go into battle, God presses the pause button. And all proceedings are halted in the text that's before us this morning. And so give you a bit of recap where we've been in case, in case if this is the first time you've been with us at Poplar Spring or if, or if uh, you haven't been in a while maybe. Just remind you where we've been in the book of Joshua. Uh, there's virtually nothing left at this point before Israel that needs to happen before the opening shots of the conquest are, are taking place, before they gain uh, actual control of the promised land. They've entered into the land and now they're ready to possess it. Joshua's ready. The people are ready. You can imagine, as we studied last week, of these 12 memorial stones, you can imagine how Joshua, as their leader, every time he saw these stones in this place called Gilgal, it would bring to his memory all that he had witnessed God do for them in the last several years, but in particular the last several months as he's been leading them. Uh, as he looks at these stones, he remembers the Ark of the Covenant as it's on the shoulders of the priests as they moved into the Jordan River. He looks at these stones and he sees and he hears, he remembers the river as it came to a roaring halt, a crashing halt, and it backed up to the city of Adam, the text tells us, and it empties all the way out to the Dead Sea. He looks and he sees his people, the Israelites, and they're camped out as far as the eye can see to the north and to the south along the western bank of the Jordan. He sees them and he remembers that just a short time before, every single one of those individuals crossed an empty Jordan on dry ground. Moms carrying infants in hand, dads or men with their livestock in tow, beasts of burden pulling carts with everything they own into the land that God had told them generations before that they would gain. 
These memories keep coming as he gazes at these memorial stones and he remembers that picture of the Ark of the Covenant as it moved across the threshold of the Jordan and now it's also in the land. And he hears again that roar as the waters come crashing back down and fill the normal path of the Jordan River as it goes back to its normal course. The people are safely across. And Joshua remembers all this and he's encouraged and he's comforted in his heart and in his soul because God has been providing for them thus far and that much is clear. And yet, he doesn't get high off of this success. He doesn't react flippantly and run headlong into battle. He waits upon the Lord. He hears from the Lord. He receives a word from the Lord because God has more pressing concerns to deal with in this moment than whatever his agenda may be, whatever his, his flesh may want to do in this moment. And so let's walk through chapter 5 and see what really mattered to the Lord in this moment. What really mattered to God before his people began the battle, the conquest of the land. So chapter 5, verse 1 serves as a transition for us. It serves as a transition because if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, look back at verse 24. You'll see the way that chapter 4 ended last week. It says, All the peoples of the earth, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So this prediction in verse 24 of what God's going to do through Israel is already happening when we get to verse 1 of chapter 5. And so let's read this transition verse together. As soon as, the, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The Amorites were a tribal group that inhabited the hill country with their force, uh, fortresses and their settlements. The Canaanites were traders on the plains all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea. You see that much in the text. Regardless, though, of their culture and where they were at geographically, they had never encountered a God like Yahweh before. They'd never experienced a God who could dry up a river in flood season and then cause it to flow again after his people had crossed over. They'd never experienced a God who could miraculously feed his people for 40 years, for 38 years in the wilderness with bread from heaven. And so in verse 1, they're shaking in their boots and their hearts are melting. There's no spirit left in them as a fear of these people that's led by this mighty God. And again, humanly speaking, wouldn't that be an ideal time to strike? I mean, you would think, like, like, let's take advantage of this moment. In sports, you would say, don't take your foot off the gas, right? In this moment, we have the momentum. Let's strike while, while the fire's hot. Let's go right now and end this thing. But not in God's timing. He has more important matters to deal with. You see, those pagan kings have no power over a God like Yahweh. Those Canaanite kings, those Amorite kings, they have no power over a God like Yahweh. He can blow them aside in a moment. He, he, their fortresses can be rolled back, just like the waters of the Jordan. Their settlements can be reduced to rubble by the mere breath of God. These kings are not God's concern. The, the military conquest that's about to take place is not God's concern at this moment. His focus is on his own people and their hearts before him. And so don't miss this, because this is key for us in the text this morning. It's key for us as we study the book of Joshua. It's key for us as the people of God today. God is concerned with the hearts of his own people because there are essential preparations of trust and renewed obedience that need to be fulfilled if his people are going to continue in right relationship with him. I'm going to read that again. That's a mouthful, but it's going to guide us in the rest of our text and much of Joshua. God's concerned with the hearts of his own people because there are essential preparations in the text, preparations of trust and renewed obedience that need to be fulfilled if his people are going to continue in right relationship with him. 
And this is key because from the beginning of Joshua, I've told you, you would see this theme, you would see this pattern that obedience leads to blessing, disobedience leads to discipline or worse curse. And you see it play out in front of us this morning. If everything that Moses commanded in the book of the law, if God's word for them was key to their success in Canaan, then to this point there's one glaring omission. There's one glaring place in their obedience that's been lacking. And that omission has to be remedied before Israel can move in, face the mighty fabled walls of Jericho, before Israel can move in and and fight in battles like I. They have to deal with this disobedience first. That's where God's attention is. That's what his focus is on before the, the first shot is even fired in the land of Canaan. So three points this morning as we see this unfold in the text before us. Number one, you see the criticism against God's covenant people. You see the criticism against God's covenant people. Look at verses 2 through 6. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. That's a struggling, a struggle, so struggle to say that word there, guys. So if you struggle with big words, it's okay. Um, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's so much in these first verses that we're going to circle back to at different times in the rest of our text. But notice first, this might seem minor, but in verse 2, it says that, that God, God said to circumcise them a second time. And continuing to read, that does not mean that you are circumcising already circumcised men for a second time. Uh, it means that the people of Israel that should have already been circumcised were not. And if you read that flippantly or real quickly and don't, don't, don't see what this is saying, that could be a terribly painful misunderstanding in the text. So what's the problem then? Why is God so concerned with this issue of circumcision? Parents today in our world, in our day and age, they make this decision uh, to do this, to, 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 to do the, the act of circumcision or not in the hospital with their newborn, usually with very little thought and, and almost always with no religious conviction behind it. So why is it then such a big deal to God? Why is he so concerned with this issue of circumcision that such that he would halt their conquest until it's taken care of? To understand that, we need a bit of background. We need to understand what it meant for them and what it was for them. And God instituted this act, this sign of the covenant. That's what it was. It was a sign of their relationship with God. He instituted this with the people of Israel all the way back in Genesis 17. Genesis 17, uh, through 10 through 14, I'll read part of it. God says this, This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. Every male Israelite boy, every Hebrew boy was to be circumcised when he was eight days old as a non-negotiable sign of the inclusion in God's covenant. This was their picture. This was their sign that they were God's people, that they were a people circumcised unto the Lord. You skip down to verse 13 of chapter 17. This is Genesis again. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
This was a huge deal to God. This was a huge issue for God because it was obedience before God. It was doing as he had commanded them, setting themselves apart and being different in this sign, in this act, in this symbol that he had given them. There's an idiom in the, that the Hebrew people would use when talking about the covenant. They would talk about the covenant in terms of cutting a covenant. I mean, think about even with animals, right? Even Passover, the first Passover. A beast, a lamb, was cut off from life to substitute, to save the consecrated family, the family that was inside that home that was marked by the blood of the lamb. In circumcision, the foreskin was cut off so to save the whole person from being cut off from God's family, cut off by God's sort of judgment. And then consequentially, every person uh, that was born unto that man, every person that was produced from that circumcised individual was also included in this covenant. And so God commands it way back in Genesis with Abraham, but it plays out in Exodus with Moses as well. You see it in Exodus 12 and 13, that before Moses ever leads his people across the Red Sea, before they ever uh, uh, escape slavery in Egypt, he instituted Passover and commanded that it be marked with circumcision, that the males be circumcised. Again, this was God's way of saying to Israel, you are mine, you are my people, I'm setting you apart as a holy people unto myself. And now it's been 40 years. 40 years that they've been in the wilderness. These fathers have been uh, leading their family in their own disobedience in the wilderness as they did not trust God to give them the promised land. And these fathers have failed to keep the most basic requirement to be circumcised unto the Lord, to be a set-apart people, to be an obedient people unto the Lord. And the sons of Israel are again uncircumcised. A generation has come up now that has not experienced this symbol, this sign unto them. They're not a distinct people unto the Lord. More, important, more importantly, they're living disobediently to his commands. This is clear command to them. And that's God's criticism of them. This is why he's halting the conquest of the land at a time that seems so opportune. Well, what in the world does this have to do with us today? How in the world do we learn anything from this that would be impactful for our lives? Well, friends, God has not changed he still demands obedience to his word. Though the sign may be different, the expectation, the principle of Scripture is still there. That you would live by the word of God. He expects us to put our lives under the authority of his word. How are you doing there? How, how are we doing as a people of God, as, as Poplar Spring Baptist Church? Do we consider his word when we're making decisions? Do we seek him out through the Scriptures? Do we spend time daily in the words that he's given us, meditating on the Scriptures, memorizing the Scriptures, so that we might hear from him and know what he's commanded of us? Further, he's given us a sign of the covenant relationship we have with him as well. It's no longer circumcision. The new covenant, the covenant of Jesus' blood, there's a sign that comes along with it. And baptism is our sign. Baptism is the way that we're showing the world, demonstrating us to be a set-apart people, a distinct people unto Christ. It's analogous to the circumcision of the Old Testament, but without the shedding of blood, physical cutting off, because Christ's blood has already been shed. Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Friends, this is why we don't baptize infants. This is why we take baptism seriously. This is why we take church membership so seriously. It's identification with Christ's shed blood, his cutting off. The circumcision of Christ is what you're claiming when you go into those waters. It's a serious matter. It's a declaration that I belong to Jesus. I have a covenant relationship with him that he's made possible by grace through faith alone. 
and his shed blood on Calvary. So let me encourage you in two ways this morning as we apply this text, a a text about taking flint knives and circumcision. Two ways to encourage you. If you're a follower of Christ and you've not been baptized, you've given your life to Christ, but you've never followed him in this act of baptism, do it. Your salvation doesn't belong, uh, doesn't depend upon it, but your obedience to God does. He's commanded it of you. And so why would you want to, to, to avoid, why would you want to not identify publicly with Jesus? He purchased your life by his death. That's what you're claiming in baptism. So announce that to the world and do it through baptism. If that's you today, come and talk to Michael or myself after the service. We'd love to walk with you through what that looks like. And second, let me encourage you in this way. If you're baptized, believer of Christ, you've identified with him, you've taken on uh, this symbol, this sign, and announced to the world, I'm now a follower of Jesus, but you're living under the weight of some habitual sin, some disobedience to God, give it to Christ today. Obedience to his word means that we daily come under uh, the authority of the scriptures, and when, when the scriptures point out sin in our lives, when the Holy Spirit identifies sin in our lives, we give it to him. We yield it to him. Daily. This is something that should be happening every day for us. If we see anything in Joshua, it's that God demands obedience. At every turn in our lives, he demands obedience. His presence in our lives. There's this correlation. Obedience and his presence. Obedience and his blessing. So if your walk with the Lord is cold this morning, it's lifeless, it's disconnected, you feel like it's just joyless, your walk with the Lord, then you probably already know some habits, some temptations, some struggles in your life with sin but if you don't, that's a, that's a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. In fact, he said he's given us his spirit for this purpose. To convict, to show us sin in our lives, to reveal areas of disobedience that we're holding on to. Yield unto him today. Be, be obedient to what he's commanded you in scriptures. Second point. Second point in the text we see. Not only do we see this criticism against God's covenant people, we see the covenant renewed with God's people. Look at verses 7 through 9. The covenant renewed with God's people. And so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now, Joshua obeys the word of the Lord here. The whole nation, all the fighting men are circumcised. And of course, in this, as in all things, God's timing is perfect. I mean, think about this. The the, the entire purpose of verse 8, look at verse 8 with me again. The entire purpose of verse 8 is to discuss the healing time for this procedure, for this circumcision. Now think about the significance of that. All of Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching and for correction and for training in righteousness. So you're telling me that Joshua 5.8 is significant for the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the training of the Lord. How in the world does a verse, verse number 8, about the healing time for a circumcision have to teach us anything about God? How is it profitable for us? Well, here it is. The healing referred to in verse 8 would take some time. As you can imagine, grown men going through this procedure, it would take some time. There would be soreness. There would be pain. And during that time, Israel would be extremely vulnerable to its enemies. I mean, you can imagine, if, if, if enemies found out that every man who could pick up a sword has just had this procedure, they're incredibly vulnerable. But remember what we've just already learned about Israel's enemies in verse 1. I told you we'd come back to verse 1. It's a transition verse for us. What do we learn about Israel's enemies in verse 1? They're melting with fear. 
They're panic-stricken. There's no spirit left in them because they fear Israel because of the power of God and what God did at the Jordan River. Friends, there's no danger, there's no danger of an attack from Israel's enemies because enemies, enemies of Israel are paralyzed with fear of Israel. It's, it's, the, it's the perfect time. And God's, God's timing here is, is absolutely perfect. His wisdom is unsearchable. Right? This is, this is something that, that, that the Lord has orchestrated. In his timing, instead of rushing into battle, deal with your heart and don't worry about the consequences of what may happen if you follow me in obedience. They're already afraid of you. They're not going to come and attack you when you're vulnerable. I've already made sure that that's the case, that that's not going to be the case. So for our lives, something's not going your way. Something's not going the way you think it should. Something's not going according to your timeline. Maybe something in your life that you thought would have happened by this point in life. It's not happened by this point in life. And you're just wondering, like, what in the world? Where did I go wrong? Friends, we serve a sovereign God whose timing is perfect. It's infallible. Trust his timing for your life. In the Lord of the Rings, the wizard Gandalf says, A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. He's never early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I'm not sure about wizards. But I know with certainty that our God can say this with 100% accuracy. You can trust the timing of God. It's better than yours. You can trust his sovereignty over every detail and facet of your life. And we'll keep going in the text. It gets better, verse 9. Verse 9, and the text reads, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to that day. You see this name, this Gilgal, is is pointing us to that meaning. That's what it means in the Hebrew. And this glorious outcome of God's grace, this glorious picture of God's grace in this moment is that Israel, there is no reproach. I've rolled it away. The the blessing that comes from God's mercy, from their obedience, is that there's no reproach. The the cruel bondage you experienced in Egypt, the, 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 the slavery as you lived under an Egyptian taskmaster, the scorn of being lost in the wilderness for 40 years, an entire generation dying off because of disobedience, it's all gone. Your reproach is rolled away. Let the weight of that wash over you this morning. Feel the weight of that, that God has commanded them and he's told them that there's now no reproach for you. Lives of disobedience forgotten. It's gone. It was possible for them to have knowledge of what God's done in their lives and to rejoice and to celebrate. And we'll see how that happens, how that plays out in the rest of our text this morning. But if it's possible for them, think about this. If it's possible for them who had no knowledge of Christ to have hope that that, that their reproach is gone, they would only be hoping that Christ would one day come, that a Messiah would one day come. They had no knowledge of who he actually was and what he actually did to secure our redemption. Then how much more, friends, how much more do we have hope of our reproach being rolled away in Christ? We've seen the cross and resurrection. In Christ, you are no longer a slave. Your reproach is gone. In Christ, you are no longer under the cruel bondage of sin. Your reproach is gone. In Christ, there is no longer this taskmaster who's lording over you named Satan. Your reproach is gone, friend. The scorn of disobedience is no longer borne by you. It was borne by Christ on Calvary. Your reproach is gone. It's rolled away. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the Spirit of Uh, From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. 
Friends, if you are in Christ, your reproach is gone. It is rolled away. On Calvary, Christ gave his life for sinners. He was placed in a tomb, and when that stone was rolled away, so was your reproach. That is good news. Praise be to God. Number three, our third point we see in the text. You see the blessings enjoyed by God's covenant, covenant people. So we see the criticism that he levels against them. We see the renewal of the covenant before him. And then thirdly, we see here the blessings enjoyed by God's covenant people. Look at verses 10 through 12. Blessings abound in these last three verses for us today. You see first verse 10. We'll, we'll take them a verse at a time. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. With this renewed relationship with God, they've, they've followed in obedience. They've set themselves apart by this sign of circumcision. They've been obedient to God in that, and they've renewed this relationship with God. It's in proper order now. The people of God are now ready to begin to observe Passover, begin to worship him. Friends, there's an order there for us to see as well. We would be doing things backwards to come into this place and expect to worship God with hearts that are full of sin and disobedience. Now that all of that has been, has been dealt with before God, notice the details in these verses. Everything in, in verse 10 is pointed to the specific application of God's commands that had been given to them earlier. Let me show what I mean there. Look at verse 10 again. And to get this, you have to go all the way back to the original Passover, Exodus 12, the, the first Passover. In Exodus 12, verse 6, God commanded them, You shall keep it, Passover, keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, two specific time-related details back in Exodus when they're commanded to, to, to observe Passover. Number one, on the 14th day of the month, there's detail number one, and second, at twilight, the Hebrew word, edev. And now here in Joshua 5, you see the same two specific observations. On the 14th day, the writer's being very specific to make sure we see that, and this exact same Hebrew word is translated evening in Joshua 5, the Hebrew word edev. So here in Joshua, we see that the writer's being very intentional to direct our attention back to the first Passover. Why is that? Why is, he, why is he going through such pain to make the language so clearly resemble the first Passover? Because this was the first Passover within the land. And it's this, it's this unique celebration that now the cycle is complete. Everything that God has said, every aspect of his promise to his people has been brought to fruition. The same God that brought them out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb has now brought them into the uh, promised land and it's being celebrated by the blood of the Passover lamb again. It's this beautiful symmetry that you see. And don't miss the significance for us as New Testament believers. We remember, you go back to Jesus in the Last Supper. What was he doing there with his disciples? He was celebrating Passover. He was observing the same feast, the same celebration with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed and brought on trial and crucified. But in doing so, he rewrote the script. He changed the meaning because he showed himself to be the true Passover lamb. Here's the reality, church family. Though Israel has entered the land, they seem to be doing well in Joshua 5. They're making their hearts good before the Lord. The Lord's blessing them. He's, he's renewing the covenant with them through their obedience and circumcision. It seems that times are really good. The Jordan is in their rearview mirror. Egypt is in their rearview mirror. They're newly circumcised, newly committed to the Lord. They're in the land of promise. The reality is they would never be able to maintain that standard of obedience. 
They would never be able to maintain the expectations of God and his word. And as a result, Israel would be conquered again. They would fall away again and be led into exile, back into bondage. The Passover lamb that they celebrated with in Joshua 5 was never meant to be ultimate or final. But it was to point them to another sacrifice, another Passover lamb that was to come. We needed a Passover lamb that could come and not just cover up our disobedience, but remove it completely. That's what we celebrate. That's what we see in Jesus on the night of the Last Supper with his disciples. He's explaining, that lamb is me. I've come to take away the sin of the world. And offering his life, the true and ultimate Passover lamb, it says now in Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation who are in Christ, that Passover lamb. This is what we see every time we celebrate communion. Every time we gather around this table and see the broken body of of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus uh, symbolized in the bread and in the juice. That's what we're celebrating, that he has given his life for us, that the true Passover lamb has taken our sins. And he's given us this sign so that we can see that rehearsed before us. Jesus' broken body leads us into a forever promised land where Joshua of the Old Testament could not lead Israel. His shed blood accomplished what the most well-intentioned Israelites could never accomplish. He accomplished our obedience. Let's keep going. We see these details of the blessings of God worked out in verses 11 and 12. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. There's so much we learn about the promises of God in, verse, in these two verses. Watch this. Three times in two verses, you can go count them yourself, it brings to our attention that they ate the produce of the land. It says that in some fashion or form three different times. What does that mean then? It means that there's no more manna and quail sandwiches for them. I mean, God has miraculously been providing bread and quail for them for 38 years. Can you imagine that? 38 years, quail and manna, and it just stops. It's done. Well, why is that? What what, what did God promise them? It's even said it back in verse 1. What did God promise them would be a trait of this land that he's giving them? A land flowing with milk and honey. A, man, a land that's rich and fertile. A land that's going to provide all of their dietary needs in abundance. And Joshua 5 is incredible because we see these promises of God fulfilled down to the very last detail. He's showing us this with incredible specificity. It's like a kid at Christmas that's so excited about a particular gift, they can't quit talking about it for two minutes. And so they just keep talking about it. And then they'll go play and they'll go talk about it again. And they'll go play and they'll go talk about it again. This is kind of what we see in these, three, in these two verses. Three different times, they eat the produce of the land. Because it was exactly what God had told them it would be. It was a land that was food rich. I mean, think about this. They just crossed the river, the River Jordan. They, they, didn't, they didn't cultivate this land. They hadn't worked this land by the sweat of their brow and by the blisters of their hands. They haven't cultivated. They haven't produced these fruits and vegetables they're eating. They haven't toiled for these blessings. They're completely and solely the blessing of God. They enter in the land and it's there for them. They didn't earn it. It was God's gift to them. It was God's blessing that he's poured out upon them. Friends, we need to hear this. We need to lean into this and quit trying to earn God's favor because you can't. It's impossible. We need to realize that the grace that's given to us is given to us just like it was for the Israelites. It's a gift to us. That's why it's called grace. You didn't earn it. There's nothing in you that deserved it. And you may be here this morning and have a, have a pride issue and say, well, I don't want to take anything I haven't worked for. 
And we have that work ethic in us, right? Like, like I, don't want, I don't want handouts. I don't want anything I haven't earned. Well, friends, hear me carefully. You don't have Christ then. The, the blessing of forgiven sins, the promise of his presence, the gift of his spirit in our lives, the, the, the wisdom and discernment that he gives us as he's, we're indwelled by his spirit, all of that is just that. It's a gift that he bestows. He completely gives us that in spite of our lack of merit. That's why it's called Grace. It's his blessing to us that he's given us himself. Notice verse 12, and we'll, we'll conclude with this. It says this, And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. The manna ceased. Now it could be tempting for them at this point to see the ceasing of this manna as an indicator that God had quit miraculously providing for them. Right? Well, that quit. God must be done with us. I mean, it's, it's perspective, right? It, like this, this miracle that he's been doing for us has stopped. But that's not the case. The manna ceased because the produce of the land was before them. One miracle ended and another one began. God stopped providing uh, bread from heaven because the promised land would grow it from the ground. <laughs> it's still a great blessing and gift from the same great God. There was a temptation they would not see that, though. And how often would we be in that same category? We don't see things this way oftentimes. But we recognize when something's huge, when it, when it happens before us, when we have this milestone moment in life, this huge miracle that God does and we attribute it to God. Someone's spared from a car wreck or cured of a disease. But what about the thousands of day-to-day provisions that we take for granted? That's the same gracious God who's providing for us. I want to end with this illustration. Dr. John Witherspoon He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. He lived a couple miles away from the school, and he drove a a horse and buggy to school every day to his office. One day, sitting in his office, a neighbor uh, burst into his office, exclaiming, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for this extraordinary providence in saving my life. I was driving from Rocky Hill, and the horse ran away, and the buggy was smashed to pieces into the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. Dr. Witherspoon looked up from his desk and replied, Well, I can tell you a far more remarkable providence than that. I have driven over that same road hundreds of times. My horse has never ran away. My buggy has never been smashed into the rocks, and I've never been hurt. Now, we read that or hear that, and we might be tempted to think, well, crummy old Dr. Witherspoon, why couldn't he just be excited for this neighbor? Why couldn't he just, why couldn't he just celebrate with his neighbor and pray with him, thanking God that his life had been spared? Why does he have to go and tell this one-upper story, right? Like, nobody likes that guy, right? The one-upper guy? You know, Kanye West, I'm going to let you finish, but nobody likes that guy. Why does this guy have to be that way? I'm not sure about the rest of the story. My guess is that he probably did pray with him. He probably did celebrate God's protection, But his point is clear. It's important for us today as we read what God's doing in the lives of these Israelites. We must beware that God is is, is not only God. He's not only providing. He's not only protecting us in the earthquake and the hurricanes and in the fires, in the natural disasters, in in salvations from car wrecks. We must guard ourselves from thinking that, that manna is God's miraculous provision, but the regular grain is somehow owed to us or just any less a grace or a blessing from God. Most of God's gifts to his people are not dazzling and gaudy, but they're simple everyday gifts wrapped in simple brown paper. They're things that he provides for us, quiet provisions of safety on the highway, health of our children, 
picking up a paycheck, being able to have a meal with our families around the table, clothes on our backs. All of these are, are just an ordinary day, day's work for our great God who gives graciously to his children every day. Let's go to him in prayer.